Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. I'm Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Our program today is a talk that uh, Daniel Pinchbeck gave at the inaugural Planque Norte lectures that we held in Burning Man in uh, year 2003. Actually, this is uh, one of a series of audio recordings from our website, PlanqueNorte.org. And there you can find talks that were given by uh, Rick Doblin, Bruce Damer, Eric Davis, Terrence McKenna, and, and quite a few others. I'll tell you more about Planque Norte at the end of today's program. By the way, I want to send a big thank you to my friends Jacques Cordell and Wells of Chateau Hayuk. Uh, they're the ones that let us use some of their tracks from their Nature Loves Courage CD for our theme song here. So thank you, guys. Now, uh, today's program is a talk called Emit Time 2012, A Change in How We Experience Time. And uh, this was given by Daniel Pinchbeck at the 2003 Burning Man Festival. And if you've just arrived on this planet and haven't heard about Burning Man yet, you can go to www.burningman.com and check it out. But the truth is, you can read about it, you see pictures, you listen to the Planque Norte talks or watch Burning Man videos, and you're still not going to be prepared for their first day in the playa. You know, I'm not even going to try to explain. You just have to go and experience it for yourself. And trust me, you, you think it's the greatest thing you ever did in your life. And this is coming from somebody who doesn't like heat, doesn't like camping, and doesn't like the desert, and doesn't plan to miss another burn if it's physically possible. Now, about Daniel. Daniel's talk, uh, this first uh, Palenque Norte series in 2003, came on Saturday, which is the day of the burn, and it was given at noon, if you can believe that. And I still don't know what possessed me to schedule the talk at such an impossible time, but, uh, <laughs> you know, those of you who have been to the burn uh, know that the Friday night party goes on until well past dawn, and, you know, by noon the next day, most of the sensible people are asleep. Of course, that didn't stop Daniel or any of his loyal fans, and as you're going to hear, they were both at the top of their game, I think. I should mention that, you know, in the weeks leading up to uh, this event, we already knew that Daniel's Palenque Norte conversation was going to be one of the biggest hits of our uh, lecture series. You know, every day we were getting uh, email requests that wanted us to verify the day and time he'd be speaking, and we actually made a lot of new friends during the week as uh, people came by every uh, day, actually every day, to check out and double-check the schedule because absolutely nobody believed we'd schedule it for noon on Saturday. Trust me, we got a lot of unsolicited advice about scheduling such a compelling event at such a crazy time of day, especially for a town in the middle of the desert. But, uh, hey, that's another story. You know, as expected, uh, Daniel's presentation was really an intellectual tour de force. And even if you attended this talk in person or heard it on the Black Rock City's K-Pod radio, I'm sure you're going to want to hear it again because without the distraction of all the wind and the heat and the dust, you probably will discover a lot of pearls of wisdom that you missed when you heard it the first time. After Daniel's presentation, I'll give you an update on what he's up to these days as well as the address of his website. Now, here is Daniel Pinchbeck at Burning Man 2003. Welcome, everybody. Good morning. This is really a, an early morning crew for uh, Black Rock City. And all of you out in Radio Land, 97.7 KPOD, we're broadcasting from the basement of the Aragon Ballroom in beautiful downtown Black Rock City and welcome all of you people out in Radio Land and those out in the fly around here and especially welcome our guests here in the 
Chilpod. Uh, my name is Lorenzo. I'm with Palenque Norte, and we are one of the uh, theme camps that's in Etheria Village, uh, nicknamed Podville for some strange reason. The magic at Palenque was uh, the conversations that got started. The people came for the lecturers the first year, and then after that they kept coming back for the crowd and, and to see old friends, meet new friends. And, and that's actually where I met Daniel uh, the first time, was in Palenque. He's uh, uh, written about it, been there, and uh, last year uh, at center camp, one of those things that you know you hear about at Burning Man all the time is uh, Randy and I, and who were sitting there, or no, it was my my wife, Mary C, and I, and Linda Shaw were sitting there, and uh, uh, everybody looked up at once, and Daniel looked up, and we all looked at each other, and said, "Wow!" and and uh, we hadn't seen each other in several years, and then we meet at center center camp for coffee in the morning, so that's one of those magical things. I know. Uh, Daniel Pinchbeck needs uh, no introduction to most of you, or you wouldn't have gotten up so early to be here. Uh, I think uh, one of the, the uh, things that I'd like to point out that maybe you don't know about Daniel is that he is, uh, uh, as far as the tribe's concerned, the, the, what I consider the tribe, the psychedelic community, his uh, genesis goes right back to the roots. His mother was uh, integral with the Beats and Ginsburg and Kerouac and... Uh, you know, it, I think what I like best is that it proves that that old rule that, you know, your kids don't turn out like you do. They skip a generation, and, you know, I'm so afraid my kids might be too straight. And uh, so Daniel is good good evidence here that you can, if you raise your kids right, they can turn out just like the rest of us. So, uh, uh, and Daniel's got a, a book that's really been making the rounds. I know a lot of you have read it. Uh, it's been in uh, excerpts in a lot of magazines. And uh, so we're going to... Uh, I've asked all of our speakers, and they're all doing this, you know, just this is their gift to the playa. And uh, they're all speaking about uh, something that they haven't really talked about much. And we are recording these on MP3, so the, the Planque Norte lectures hopefully will be on our website. Most of them, we've had a few little equipment issues, but uh, the biggest part of them will be up there, and Daniel's agreed to let his up there, too. So he's going to be talking about some very interesting things, and then we'll have a Q&A, and I hope somebody asks him about his trip with Eric Davis to look at crop circles this summer, because I'm interested in that, too. Oh, there's Eric. So welcome, Eric, and John Hanna. Several of our speakers are here. Bruce. Damer, so uh, thank you guys for coming back and supporting each other. So who helped me welcome Daniel? Daniel. Thank you so much. I mean, I just feel so honored to be here and to be doing this. It's really exciting. And um, I was going to start with a quote from Rilke. I'm going to repeat it twice because it's really um, ornate, but I think it's really beautiful. Who, if I cried out, would hear me among the angelic hierarchies? And even if one of them suddenly pressed me against his heart, I would merely be consumed in the strength of that stronger existence. For beauty is nothing but the beginning of terror, which we are still just able to bear, and we love it because it so serenely disdains to annihilate us. I'm going to repeat it again. Who, if I cried out, would hear me among the angelic hierarchies? And even if one of them suddenly pressed me against his heart, I would merely be consumed in the strength of that stronger existence. For beauty is nothing but the beginning of terror, which we are still just able to bear, and we love it because it so serenely disdains to annihilate us. 
The first thing I wanted to say was just, um, you know, thank you. Thank you, Larry, for putting this together. I think it's really important. I think it really raises the vibration of Burning Man to take ideas seriously and to give a space for them to, to be explored. Um, and, you know, I'm going to do as much as I can in this talk to convey the ideas I've had on these subjects, and I'll answer all your questions. And I'm not going to go to the burn tonight. I'm going to stay at Comfort. If anybody wants to come and uh, talk to me deeply about any of this stuff, you know, all day or during the burn, I'll, I'll be there. Um, you know, because I want people to really have a crystalline appreciation of what I'm saying. Um, I think that's important. Uh, and the other thing I wanted to say, and I think this is also really important, is I wanted to say thank you, Creator Spirit, for giving us Burning Man. You know, thank you so much. So um, I've also um, I've been studying the crop circles, and I have this incredibly beautiful book, Crop Circle Yearbook 2002. I'm just going to pass it around, and really everybody just you know take a look at it and give it to the next person. Just uh, this one on the cover, you can see it's um, these druidic long barrows. Um, crop circle perfectly sighted to touch them. And then way in the background is Stonehenge. So it's, it's a kind of focusing, um, you know, on the Neolithic landscape, which is a kind of um, sacred, sacred landscape in England, and um, kind of reactivating knowledge about Stonehenge and about Avebury. How many people here know what Stonehenge was used for? Well, it was used for many things, but it was used to predict uh, moon eclipses. They could predict them to the day. Um, so at a certain point, the priest or the shaman would go outside and he would clap his hands and the sun would disappear. Um, where it's sighted, the Stonehenge, uh, there's, a, there's a circle and inside is a perfect rectangle. Along the rectangle, it sights the uh, summer solstice, uh, sun rising, uh, midwinter solstice, I can't remember exactly, moon rising. Anyway, it's this perfect rectangle. If Stonehenge was one latitude above or below, it would have to have been a parallelogram. It would have ruined the geometry. Okay? It's perfectly sighted where it is. It's also, I think, on the same latitude line as the Great Pyramids of Giza. It's a kind of uh, anchoring point for the planets. My understanding of it, thinking about it a lot, is that um, the Neolithic people before building Stonehenge, had a complete intuitive awareness, understanding of their relationship to the planet and the planet's relationship to the solar system as, as, and, and, and the universe. When they began to lose that intuitive awareness, they had to exteriorize it. So they had to build Stonehenge and Avebury in places like that. Um, they did it for two purposes. One was because they knew they were beginning to lose this ability and this knowledge, so they had to do it for themselves. But they did it in such a way, with such permanence, for us at this time. Um, you know, it's like if you go to Stonehenge and Avebury, I mean, there have been so many, like, wars fought, Christians have chipped away at them, you know, travelers have taken chunks out of them, you know, but yet there they are. They, they survive, they're magnificent, and um, they still contain all this information about the cosmic cycles. And um, they're keys for us to resynchronize to the cosmic cycles, because that's part of what we have to do right now. So I think a key to understanding 2012 and the dimensional shift and what's taking place is understanding time. And um, I read this amazing book by this guy, Gene Gepser, and he's a German philosopher. Uh, he wrote one book. He spent 17 years on it. It's called The Ever-Present Origin. And um, in this book, he just looks at um, human consciousness 
And he sees that consciousness doesn't, his thesis in the book is that human consciousness does not evolve incrementally. It involves in sudden breaks and mutations. And he looks at, the, at past mutations and um, he, he delineates a number of them. And each different, he calls them consciousness structures. And each different consciousness structure is also a different kind of relationship to space and time. Um, he has the archaic consciousness structure, which is kind of pre-temporal. He has the magical consciousness structure. In mag magical time, it's instantaneous. Things just happen like that. Then there's the uh, mythical consciousness structure, which is uh, Egypt, you know, Babylon, you know, uh, Hindus. You know, that's uh, cyclicity, periodicity, duality, you know, returning, you know. Then we have what we're at the end of now, which is the mental rational structure. And that's uh, linear time. Um, and he believes that we're right now moving into a different mutation, into a new consciousness structure, which he calls the integral aperspectival. Now, the mental rational consciousness structure, um, I can't remember when he says it began right now, you know, the Greeks maybe, um, it kind of peaked in the 15th century uh, with perspective. And since then, it's been in, in, it's in, it's in, it's in the deficient mode. Um, and basically, became, you know, we became obsessed with matter, materiality, spatial extension, okay? We um, thought that's all that reality was. So we spatialized time. We said that um, you can have, you know, when we talk about time, the words we use, we talk about a length of time or a span of time or an amount of time. But time is not a length or a span or an amount. It's something different. Einstein said it was the fourth dimension. Okay? What, what time is, according to Gebser, is um, uh, intensities. It's uh, non-categorizable. You know, there's infinite types of intensities that you can experience. Um, time is a kind of uh, vibrational matrix. Um, so you have the um, archaic, the, the magical, the mystical, the mental rational, and the new consciousness mutation, integral, aperspectival. Integral, aperspectival, you recognize that all of these layers, previous layers of consciousness, exist simultaneously. Okay? You are simultaneously in the pretemporal origin, the ever-present origin. Okay? You are in magical, instantaneous time. You are in mythical, psychical time. You are in mental, rational, linear time. You're in all of these times simultaneously. They don't, um, they, they, there's, no, there's no conflict there. But you, from the integral perspective, you recognize that all of these times are what he calls uh, veils, diaphanous veils. Uh, they're, like, uh, they're like curtains, veils. Um, and you, um, um, you have that different perspective from which to, um, from which to live in time. Um, so I read this book, and um, I was... Um, before I even read this book, actually, I was incredibly lucky to get a chance to talk to Jose Arguiles. Uh, how many people here have read Jose Arguiles' books? So not so many. Uh, I think Jose Arguiles is very, very profound, very, very important. Um, and basically, um, the thesis of Arguiles that he came up with is that um, the Mayans are a kind of galactic civilization that came to Earth, the classical Mayans, 
incarnated into the earth at a certain point to leave the temples at Palenque, to leave to, to encode into the planet this information about time and resynchronization so that now when we needed to have this information we would find it it would be there okay the um, tomb of Taklavotan in Palenque was opened um, I think it was June 15th 1952 the archaeologists who opened this tomb they found it they found you know they, they, they'd seen the whole thing before but they found this secret tunnel secret uh, speaking tube and went down into this tomb and that's where they found Taklavotan you've probably seen the cover of the tomb um, which is this amazing image of uh, Paco Vatan kind of drifting, floating through the kind of uh, cosmos, the cosmic tree, in kind of meditation, uh, meditative samadhi. Um, so they found this tube, June 15, 1952, I think. The archaeologists said when they opened the doors to this tomb, they could feel the concentrated thoughts of the last people who'd occupied that room rushing past them and into the atmosphere, okay? Jose Arguiles believes that um, those thoughts, there was a concentrated meditation, had been created in that space, so that at that certain point, it would, those thoughts would rush out and begin or help to activate what, Ar what Arguiles calls... How many people know about the concept of the newosphere? Okay, so some people, that's great. So the idea of the newosphere is that, and it's from uh, Teilhard de Chardin, Okay, there's, um, you know, different layers of the planets. You know, there's, um, you know, kind of the mineral layer, the lithosphere. There's the, the, the water layer. You know, there's the, um, you know, there's the whole biosphere. You know, there's the atmosphere. And above all of that is the newosphere, which is the envelope of thought around the planet. And um, what 2012 is about is about human, humanity consciously activating the newosphere. And when we're able to do that, we'll be able to consciously transform the planet in whatever way we like. Okay? The planet will become Burning Man. That's what's going to happen in 2013. <laughs> with, with running water, exactly. Uh, you know, um, Gebser looks at the um, mental rational consciousness structure. What happens when, the, when the, the structure changes, okay? What happens when somebody from a new mutation goes to the old mutation, okay? What happens when Cortez goes to South America? Huge Aztec empire, somewhat decadent, huge, okay? He goes there with a small group of, of men. In a few months, the entire empire collapses. Why? Because Cortez is a man of the mental, rational consciousness structure. The Aztecs are still in the mythical consciousness structure. They can't deal with him. They can't, they can't, they, there's no way for them. They just collapse, okay? When you achieve the integral, a perspectival consciousness structure, the mental, rational consciousness structure simply disappears. Or you integrate it into, into all these other structures. I mean, which arguably I, I would say are more profound ways of dealing with existence, but um, they're all together, you know. And I think that's what's happening right now. And he says that when this begins to happen, it's like the, the old consciousness structure, you know, begins to degrade, begins to almost like dissipate. It's like, it's like it can't be, it's, it's not real anymore. You know, I had this experience. I was flying to Hawaii 
for this shamanic retreat that was so profound and beautiful, and I was so lucky to get to go on it with, this, with these amazing people. And I, I changed train, planes in the Denver airport. You know, I get out of the plane, I mean, uh, the one plane, I get to go to the airport, and there are people running through the aisles with face masks because they're scared of the SARS virus. There are National Guardsmen carrying machine guns with their fingers on the trigger and canteens for some reason that I've never quite understood. Um, on CNN, blaring, there is, you know, we've just gotten into Baghdad, hooray, ah, there we go. You know, it's a dream. You know, it's the dream time. You know, it's not a reality. It's a dream. Um, story about um, maybe apocryphal, but good enough. Uh, somebody visited the Australia, Australian Aboriginals. He um, asked one of the Aboriginal shaman, you know, what is the dreaming? The uh, shaman pointed up at a plane flying over the sky. He said, white man dreaming. I got really involved with the ideas of um, Rudolf Steiner. And I really recommend that people read his books and think through his ideas. He's an incredible visionary. He is just so fucking amazing. And he went so deep into his thoughts. And it's so interesting how, you know, he's kind of been kind of not taken seriously. We know the Waldorf schools, you know, that he founded, most important independent educational system on the planet. We know biodynamic agriculture, which he created, you know, forerunner to organic agriculture, actually more profound in some ways, okay? He would never put forward these ideas. He would wait until somebody came to him and said, well, how do you apply your ideas to education, these esoteric concepts, these crazy ideas? Um, for me, what Rudolf Steiner is, he is a kind of um, modernist recapitulation of the indigenous shamanic cosmology at a higher level of articulation. Um, Steiner talks about, Steiner, Steiner said that his mission in coming to the earth uh, during that life was to bring the knowledge of reincarnation back to the West. Um, Steiner said that not only do people incarnate again and again, but the earth itself reincarnates. This is currently the fourth incarnation of the earth. In every incarnation of the earth, humanity has been different. Humanity has always been with the earth. Humanity exists to transform the earth on a side real scale, on a higher scale. We are a single organism co-evolving with the earth. Steiner describes so, okay, so one thing very interesting about this, the Hopis say exactly the same thing. They say that this is the fourth world, and we're currently passing through the transition to the fifth world. That's what 2012 is. We're in the transition stage right now. Material reality is becoming subtly less dense. Reality is becoming more psychically malleable. Gently. It happens in stages. Steiner talks about, like, Atlantis and Lemuria. You know, we're never going to find relics from Atlantis. Atlantis was a different consciousness state. Different consciousness state is a different relationship to time and space. Next phase, next incarnation of the Earth. Human beings, okay, what's going to happen? According to Steiner, um, the uh, organ of reproduction, just one thing, moves from the genital chakra to the throat chakra, okay? We start to be able to sing or enunciate beings like ourselves into existence. When I went down to the Amazon in Ecuador, 
um, I worked with this amazing shaman, Don Cesario. You know, tribe was 30,000, 19th turn of the century, down to about 700 people. He's their last great shaman, holding the pure line, you know, totally, you know, like uh, dealing with all these hostile forces, you know, the oil companies, the gorillas, the drug smugglers. He's there. He's holding the pure line of the ayahuasca knowledge, okay? You know, his singing in ayahuasca trance is so profound. They told me when the tribe used to sing all together, go deep, deep, deep in the ayahuasca trance, they would do it for nights upon end. Sometimes at the end of the night, the shaman would look down and in his hand would be a seed or a sapling. They would have sung a new plant into existence because what they're doing is interacting with the elemental spirits, with the elemental forces. And the plant would be a medicinal herb that they need for their tribe, some, some plant they needed. Okay. When I heard this, of course, I was like, that's ridiculous. No way. You know, I let it sink in. I had my own magical experiences. I believe that it is the case. I believe that using shamanism, ayahuasca, mushrooms, we can do things that are incredibly impossible from our current perspective. And um, those spirits and those forces are waiting to work with us. And they're, and they're ready. You know, they've been waiting for this time, you know. So going to shamanic practice is part of the key to turning this whole thing around. Um, it has to be done very attentively, very highly consciously. You know, it's very valuable to go back to the Native traditions and to see what the Native American church is, to see, you know, how the indigenous shamans hold the medicine. It's very important. I think he's interesting. He's kind of a trickster. He's kind of a circus showman. You know, but it's the same information as Arguilas. I think that's part of what's happening. Magnetic North is flipping like crazy. Thesis of my next book. Destruction of the biosphere by modern industrial civilization is a willed cataclysm designed to force the accelerated evolution of human consciousness to the next level. It's exquisitely timed. It's, it, if you look at any process in nature, timing is exquisite. Fetal development, moment by moment, chemical signals released, okay? Consciousness, evolving consciousness of a planet. LSD popped into the world, 1943, Basel, Switzerland, center of medieval alchemy, final solution going on all around. That's the seed moves us forward, one of the seeds. Had to be integrated in stages, how to work with that medicine. Um, that reminds me of something else that I don't think really addresses this. Yeah. Another way, there are many different ways, kind of articulations, with which to look at what's happening, and it's really nice to just have a bunch of different ways so that we can go deeper into understanding. And it's like levels of awareness. We have to keep pushing into it, because it's scary. It's talking about a total transformation of the Earth, okay? Total transformation of humanity, okay? Um, one way is to talk about the Tree of Life and the Kabbalah, and from that to the uh, Mandelbrot set, you know, fractals. Uh, tree of Life and the Kabbalah, ten sephiroths. Each sephiroth contains another Tree of Life. Infinite. It's a fractal, okay? If you take the Tree of Life and you take away Kether, and um, beneath Kether is the Phantom Sephiroth, the eleventh, Daf, okay, which is both the Abyss and knowledge. If you draw 
a uh, circle, circles as sort of sort of curves rating out from Daf, the abyss and knowledge, and make a kind of shape like that, you know, with the little curls for the um, you know for for the Sephiroth, you have exactly the Mandelbrot set. So you know, I think we need a different way of thinking about, and our language is going to evolve also. Our language is going to change, you know, because it's um, it's not just it's not really about dimensions. That's too hard a word. It's more about intervals, you know, infinite intervals, infinite possible experiences of consciousness. You know, part of 2012 is going to be, um, you know, the ability to explore different types of time and space, which are also different beings. Steiner says the universe is entirely composed of beings in different states of consciousness. Okay? I say that consciousness is technology. Steiner um, talks about, he, he describes the incarnations of the earth, and then he gives them different names. It's a little confusing. We're in the earth phase. Next phase he calls the Jupiter incarnation. Okay? Bush, Cheney have an island in Florida, Jupiter Island. That's where they go to retreat. You know? They're part of the process. It's coevolution. You know, um, Mars this week approaching the Earth, 60,000 years, the closest. You know, uh, the, one of the nights that it came really, really close, uh, late in the night after, you know, having enjoyed certain sacraments, um, I, you know, I noticed that I, I, my whole body was softly vibrating. My hands were vibrating. This other woman I was sitting next to um, said exactly the same thing, un, unbidden by me. And I realized that what happened is that, you know, the, the solar system is a kind of a vibratory matrix, a resonant tuning system. Mars approaching the Earth, changing the vibrational frequency of the planets, <clears throat> making it a little materially less dense, okay, a little more psychically responsive. Um, materialism, materiality, first half of that word, mater, mother, okay, the, the evil mother, the devouring mother, the possessive mother, Kali, the destroyer, Kali Yuga, coming to the end of the Kali Yuga. Some of that Kali energy just left the planet. Okay? Um, possessiveness. You know, no. <laughs> you know, I realized I've had all these struggles with my girlfriend back in New York. And, you know, I realized that I'm just not monogamous. You know, I don't think anybody is monogamous. You know, because monogamy is, is, is based on the whole Christian thing. And it's based on trying to cling, trying to possess. You can't possess. You can't cling. You can only, all, all that does is impede other people's evolutionary processes. You have to fully liberate other people. And you have to, you know, just increase the love. You know, if they love somebody, you love that person. You know, that's the way it works. And I think Terrence McKenna was right about this. Um, you know, in the 60s, we had this idea of this mass transformation that didn't really work, you know, that it was going to be this total transformation through the masses. Everyone's getting so amped up. No, it doesn't work like that. It's about intensification among a smaller group. Rupert Sheldrake talks about morphogenic fields, the hundredth monkey principle, okay? Uh, a certain number of monkeys on an island learn a skill, that skill is transmitted through the morphogenetic field to all the monkeys on different islands, okay? Gurdjieff, 200 fully conscious people can change the nature of all life on Earth. So the, we don't need the mass media. What we need is, and we do, well, we do need the mass media. Whatever you do, you get the message out to get the understanding out, to move the knowledge along, 
is all good. You know, use everything that you can. You know, we, there's a reason that we've developed the Internet, global consciousness, the synaptical brain of the planet. It's so, as this transformation happens, we can move these ideas along at instantaneous, instantaneous points, you know. Um, it's part of the process. I'm going to take that in a different direction. I just want to talk about Kant for one second. Steiner, uh, philosophy of freedom, okay? Kant had the idea that we have sen our sense perceptions is like a, a net, and we can't get to the reality behind the net. It's separate from us permanently. We can't get to the things in themselves. Steiner and the philosophy of freedom, to me, completely just defeats that, that, that argument, because he points out that um, perception is always and already an act of cognition. As soon as you're perceiving something, you're, you're, you're thinking, you're, you're cognizing it, you're thinking it, you're, you're bringing it into manifestation, you're allowing it to manifest. Um, so Steiner said that there's no limits to perception, no limits to thought. It's infinite. You know, Gebser talks about it's not that it's not about the expansion of consciousness. What they said in the '60s, it's about the intensification of consciousness. Words are very important. Intensification, no limit to the intensification. You can go, you know, and, and infinitely deep. You know, time is an illusion. Arguilas, Arguilas, um, basically, brilliantly, in his book *Time in the Technosphere*, this new book, um, which is. He's so overwhelming, he's so over the top that it really puts people off. But, the, you know, the ideas are just so there and so amazing. And it's like you have to move into his space, like, point by point, you know. But basically he says that um, the calendar is the macro-organizing principle of a culture. If you have a calendar that's not synchronized to natural patterns, to the cosmic order, if you have a 12-month calendar, arbitrary days, named after vicious... Caesar, Caesarian empire, emperors, you know, that calendar is desynchronizing everybody. And if they become desynchronized, they become insane. The whole culture will become insane, you know. So he put forward a new calendar, 13 moon calendar, okay, um, trying to resynchronize with the lunar cycles. Um, I don't think it's perfect. I think there's good fine tuning to do on what he's done, but it's beautiful. It may be it may it may be good enough. I mean I mean I think that he this calendar that he created, you can go to um www.tortuga.com, read about it, www.thirteenmoon.com, um, read about it, download it, find your galactic signature. Instead of an astrological sign, you have a galactic signature. Um, mine was yellow spectral star. Um, my birthday, June fifteenth, nineteen sixty six. June fifteenth the day Takovatan's tomb was opened in 1952. Yellow spectral star. Jose Arguilas has this thing of um, sort of partners that you have. You have a kind of, um, uh, you have an antipode partner, you have an occult partner, you have a helping partner. Okay, he's a blue spectral monkey. I'm a yellow spectral star. I'm, I happen to be his perfect helping partner. When he, you know, when I was going to interview him, he asked uh, for my birth, you know, date, and he recognized that this was part of this whole process that we're going through. You can do your own research, you know. I mean, I'm, I, 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 I can't. Um, there's the John Major Jenkins book, Maya Cosmogenesis. This is my friend John Hoops. Uh, the Maya calendar is based on a variety of very fundamental concepts about humans and their place in the world and, the, and in the universe. 
And what makes the Maya calendar very distinct from ours is that one thing is that the Maya is thought in what was called a bigesimal system. That is, we tend to count to base, we tend to use a base 10 system and we count to 10 on our 10 fingers. Um, for the Mayas, the concept of wholeness was the whole body. And you have 10 fingers and 10 toes. So 20 is a complete being, and Winik, or Winal, is 20. So the base 20 is a very fundamental part of the calendar. Now, there are two parts to the Maya ritual, to the Maya calendar. One of them is a ritual calendar of 260 days, which is based on 20. And then you have the number 13, which is a very fundamental number, which is a prime number. It's a number that resonates in the cycles of a number of, of, of planets uh, and natural processes. But the most basic calendar is one that we can trace back to about 500 B.C. and involves the intersection of the numbers 20 and 13. There are a total of 13 sacred months and 20 numbers. Um, and each uh, number, you run through 20, and then you go to the next month. So in any 260-day period, you have, a, you have a number and you have a month name. And that gives that day its special quality. But that's the ritual quality of that day. There is also a 365-day real-world calendar, which is tied to the rotation or the, um, the circling of the Earth around the Sun, the orbiting of the Earth around the Sun, which is based on the same 20 numbers, but a total of 18 plus 1, 19 months. And 18 months of 20 days each gives you 360 days. And then there's a five-day period which is considered to be the Yeb, which is a very dangerous period. <laughs> and uh, in, in fact, is a period when things are in flux. And during the Yeb, uh, which typically falls during the spring, you need to be very, very cautious. But it, you cycle through uh, 20 days in 18 months, and then you add the five, and you get 365. Well, these two calendars interact with each other in a much larger cycle, in that if you permute 260 against 365, what you find is that every day in that period has a unique quality, one that comes from the number, and every number has a potency. Uh, we tend to associate numbers like four or three or seven with uh, magical qualities. Every number for the Maya had its significance, two, three, eight, whatever. Um, the months also had their particular qualities, and many of the months on the ritual calendar are named after natural objects. So in the ritual calendar, you have a quality. Then in the worldly calendar, you have a quality. So every single day is imprinted with the quality of the sacred calendar and of the ritual calendar. Well, those two only permute against each other once every 52 years. Now, if you think about the Maya world, not that many people reach the age of 52, but you typically would have only one birthday in a 52-year cycle. And if someone could reach two birthdays, if they could actually live to the age of 104, which probably happened every once in a while, that person was a person of a quality that, that was absolutely exceptional. But these two calendars permute against each other, and then there are a series of levels in the larger calendar. That is, these, they, you, have, you have the quality of the day, then you have the quality of the month, of which there are 18 months, and then those months go into a cycle of 20 years called a katun. And then those 20 years go into a cycle of 400 years called a baktun. And the baktuns can reach the number of 13, but there's no 14th baktun. Uh, above the baktun, you have a kalabtun, 
which is 400 times 20, or 8,000 years, and then it continues going until we're talking about cycles of hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, what we're going to reach on December 21st in the year 2012 is the very end of Bakhtun 13, at which point we move to a, a whole other level of existence, um, which is going to be a, a new consciousness, a new world. Um, but that's the Maya calendar in a nutshell. Uh, let, me, let, let, me just, let me just say that we still don't know exactly where the 268 calendar comes from. It may be tied in with, uh, with, with the cycle of Venus. But one very interesting speculation, which is something that, that, that um, you have to think about the context, and context is everything for calendars, is that 260 days is also a fairly good approximation of the time from fertilization to birth. Okay, it's approximately nine months. To add another dimension to this, think of the context in which Maya women were experiencing childbirth. They were living in villages where they were sharing their pheromones, and it's been documented that women who live together in close proximity for long periods of time tend to cycle together. And so in a, native, in, a, in a Neolithic village, one of the things that will happen, not strictly, because we're not, we're not robots, but in general, you will find all of the women in the community cycling together, and there will be distinct periods of fertilization and birth, which are represented by perhaps this 268 calendar. I just wanted to thank you so much for that. That was awesome. And I just appreciate so much all the brilliant minds at Burning Man. It's like heaven to, to speak with you. I want to really recommend another book to people. It's called A Little Book of Coincidence. It's by this guy John Martineau, who was sort of initiated into esoteric cosmology by the crop circle phenomenon. Um, and this book, he just created a software program where he um, was able to create maps, diagrams of the relationship between the Earth and different planets. Venus, um, I think it's five times in eight years Venus and the Earth, you know, come as close as they come, and um, Venus always presents the same face to the Earth. Um, 5, 8, 13, Fibonacci scale. I mean, that's why Venus is the planet of beauty, because it has this incredible harmonic relationship with the Earth. Okay, Steiner. You've got to read Steiner. Ugh, you've got to read Harmony of the Creative Word fucking masterpiece so beautiful about the elemental spirits about the gnomes etc okay that's a digression Steiner talks about time being composed of time spirits archangels each period of time is a being the middle ages was a being um, renaissance modern period okay anyway that's all I was just going to introduce a dimension for discussion that I haven't heard yet um, and that is, to a large extent, in focusing on 2012, we're, we're appropriating knowledge that did not come from the Western tradition at all. We've been talking about Steiner and Aristotle and others. But, in fact, it's an indigenous native movement, uh, which ties in with some of the things that are going to change our world in 2012 that we need to be conscious of now and, 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 and work together with, because it's the synthesis of West and non-West that is one of the most important things that will happen then. And among the kinds of things that bring it into the real world are the fact that there are social movements, such as um, uh, Subcomandante Marcos's Zapatistas, who do everything according to the calendar. 
uh, and people who have been watching the Zapatistas and discussing them have no doubt whatsoever that December 21st, 2012 is going to be a time when the Zapatistas, who have been moving, I mean, they're, they're, they're not so much a, a, a military or political movement as a consciousness movement, and they will use theater, they will use uh, tricksterism, they will use all kinds of things to fuck up the world in major ways as we get closer to 2012. In addition to which, yet another movement called the Movimiento Maya, which is happening in Haya and Guatemala among Maya groups, is also keyed in on this calendar. And so if you're not aware of what's happening in indigenous movements, um, we're kind of continuing in, in the wrong mode of thinking by sticking strictly with Western perspectives. And we need to get the, the indigenous perspectives in as well. Maybe you could speak to some, some of that. Right, well, that's why I keep telling people they must go now, if they can, and work with the, you know, the shamans who've been holding these traditions, if they can do it. I just wanted to point out that Arguilas was recognized by nine indigenous tribes in Mexico as the closer of the cycle. They did a ceremony for him at Teotihuacan, the Pyramid of the Sun, and they gave him this beautiful staff, incredibly well carved with all of these crystals. Um, he is the closer of the cycle. He is the one who has taken the indigenous shamanic knowledge and updated it for the modern mind. Okay, just, just quickly, sort of integrating um, my own scientific academic upbringing with, um, with the chaotic lessons that have been coming my way. Um, I've been listening to this discussion and thinking that um, these, a lot of these terms are possibly predictive which fascinates me, and I want to um, study more along those lines, but definitely poetic. And I guess the point I'm making, and I want to hear what you think about it, um, is I think that if nothing special happens in December of 2012, we shouldn't be too disappointed. And if it happens in um, April of 2004, we should be ready. We're in the transition. And, yeah, I mean, the, I mean Arguilas says that the universe is an art project. It's God's art project. Time is art. I mean, I wrote a book about psychedelics and shamanism. Right here? Okay. I think that if you read the book, you'll understand that, what you're asking. Um, Terence McKenna, shamanism. The universe is made of language. Of course, he was a writer, as I'm a writer. For a musician, the universe is made of music. Um, it's true, though. You know, we story, we're, we, you know, Reality is storied, fabled into existence. A fantasy, I have. Across America, cities, industrial wastelands, factories, warehouses, empty. Center cafes in these places, you know, raise the vibration, you know. Introduce workshops, yoga, massage, you know, Detroit, Pittsburgh, you know. Find the money, find the backer. Very wealthy people here at Burning Man. What are they doing with their money? Money's not going to mean anything in 10 years. We're not going to use money anymore. Aguilas thinks we're going to become telepathic. I agree with him. We're already becoming more telepathic. Well, also what Burning Man shows us is that as the individual becomes more individual, the collective becomes more collective at a higher level. Um, I've been doing a lot of research about going and seeing a shaman and working with ayahuasca and things like that. And what I find for myself is I, some things sound very touristy and some things 
I don't know where to look. I was wondering if you had any suggestions or what to look out for or what to look for, positive or negative. Kabbalah, basic virtue of the earth plane, discrimination, okay? Discriminates. Go to the ayahuasca.com website. Use the internet. Read reports. Read what people say. I don't have the answers. Make your own judgments. Shamans are tricksters. You know, there are deeper levels of shamanism, you know. You can learn from a tacky, shitty shaman. You can learn from Carlos Castaneda, who made up, you know, a lot of bullshit. On the other hand, paradox, incredibly profound texts. They move you. You know, they show you things. You know, it's a paradox, a crop circle phenomenon, a profound teaching on the nature of reality, how to embrace paradox. You've mentioned Steiner a few times, and I did a training, Waldorf training, and one of the things they talked about in there is that, that he suggests aligning the social studies curriculum around the times of civilizations and matching that up with the development of the students such that they might learn Greek history or Renaissance or Reformation or Enlightenment period depending on their level of development in their life, whether they're going through a rebellious stage when they're 12 or 13 Whatever, and I was wondering if you could further comment on the philosophy behind aligning, you know, these ages of civilization with the, the stages we go through as as people, and how that ties in with two, 2012. I didn't know that about Steiner's educational philosophy. Anything that Steiner says should be considered very, very deeply. A lot of his ideas in the esoteric realm seem incredibly bizarre at first and impossible, and then you just sit with them. You know, you don't reject them, you don't accept them, you don't believe in them, you don't, you don't, you know, cynically think they're garbage. Just hold them, you know, hold the space for them. They move, they move inside you. Um, Steiner, you know, it's very controversial. He talks about, um, you know, children should not learn to read until they're, I think, uh, six, roughly, until they're, um, they start getting, I guess, their second set of teeth. He says that the reason that is that that's the case, so when you start getting the second set of teeth, is when the uh, ether body emerges from the physical body. Okay, um, when you're 12, 13, the astral body starts to emerge. When your next seven years, whatever it is, the I, the ego, fully emerges. I don't know what I think about that. I learned to read very, very young. It imbalanced me. However, it's how I got to be who I am. You know, my mother was, was a writer and a reader, you know, completely prioritized that. It's one way of knowing, you know. I think that, um, you know, his ideas are very profound, Steiner's. Hi. Before you end today, could you give us a travel story that's not in your book? <laughs> well, did you see the LA Weekly piece? I did an LA Weekly piece, uh, came out last week, about going down to Mexico and taking Iboga for a second time. Uh, yeah, we both in Mexico. The Ibogaine Association, it's a clinic, uh, Rosarita Beach, treating addicts. And uh, they, they read, the guy had read my book, the doctor, a really wonderful, fabulous guy, offered me a free treatment. Um, and I had some trepidation. You know, it's a very hard experience. And I said, all right, you know, I want to do this again. It's been a few years. And I want to see what, you know, Iboga is going to teach me. Um, a lot of this experience for me, was um, it was like interview. Uh, I had this vision of a black man in a suit, looked a little like Sidney Poitier. Took me, but I was a five-year-old girl. He took me by the hand. He led me up some stairs in his castle. 
the uh, castle of Mystery Boga. And um, I could ask him questions, and I would get responses. They would be like um, shouted, telegraphed, loud in my head. When you take Iboga, your whole head is buzzing really loudly. It's like, it's like a frequency. You know, I think that um, psychedelics move you to a different vibrational frequency so you can take in different patterns of information. Iboga is a very deep frequency. It retunes you. Okay? It's an enlightenment mind. It's like the Buddha, but it's a little sterner. It's a little harder. It's like a tough father. Uh, fair, but very, very hard. Okay? So, um, you know, I said, so Mr. Iboga, what is Iboga anyway? Answer. Primordial wisdom teacher of humanity. You know, I said to Mr. Iboga, uh, also, whenever you take a boga, you're shown all of your shitty things that you do, all of your bad habits, all of your crap, you know, in repetitive little loops. There it is. You know, and I was like, Mr. Iboga, some of this shit is just so minor. You know, does this matter? You know? Answer. Everything matters. Thought about um, people that I knew. Shitty things that had happened to them. My own daughter, born with a small handicap. Seemed unfair. I've worked so hard to try to elevate, to try to raise the vibration of consciousness, giving everything to this. You know, really only caring about, about surrendering to the greater will and helping move, the, move things along. Okay? Answer. God is just. Okay, I never, usually don't think about God in those terms. I understood karmic patterns, you know, um, work you have to do. Um, thought about the horror of the modern world. Visions of nuclear devastation, biospheric annihilation. Response. Everything is safe in God's hands. Um, I just wanted to say I finished your book a few weeks ago. Uh, the following weekend, I ran into some people that were going to Burning Man. This is my first time. And, uh, <laughs> uh, well, maybe this will tell you. I wanted to say thank you for bringing me here. I wanted to also um, just give you a little bit from a T.S. Eliot poem. And I think T.S. Eliot actually, I, for some reason, I just sort of accidentally brought his little book of selected poems. And I think he actually had achieved, basically, the new consciousness structure. Uh, that's what Gebster says also. I didn't realize that. I didn't realize how profound he was. If you read The Wasteland, it's really amazing right now. Four quartets. Really fucking fantastic. Is everyone having a good time here? It's fun, right? It's fun to talk about this stuff. It's fun. It's a relief. It's a relief to think through it, to understand it, you know? Diaphanous veils, consciousness structures, it's fucking beautiful. Because I do not hope to turn again. Because I do not hope. Because I do not hope to turn. Desiring this man's gift and that man's scope. I no longer strive to strive towards such things. Why should the aged eagle stretch its wings? Why should I mourn? the vanished power of the usual rain. Because I do not hope to know again the infirm glory of the positive hour. Because I do not think. Because I know I shall not know the one veritable transitory power. Because I cannot drink. 
there where trees flower and springs flow, for there is nothing again. Because I know that time is always time, and place is always and only place. And what is actual is actual only for one time and only for one place. I rejoice that things are as they are, and I renounce the blessed face and renounce the voice because I cannot hope to turn again. Consequently, I rejoice, having to construct something upon which to rejoice. And pray God to have mercy upon us. And I pray that I may forget these matters that with myself I too much discuss, too much explain, because I do not hope to turn again. Let these words answer for what is done, not to be done again. May the judgment not be too heavy upon us. Because these wings are no longer wings to fly, but merely vans to beat the air. The air, which is now thoroughly small and dry, smaller and drier than the will. Teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still. Thank you. And thank you, Daniel. Every time I listen to that talk, I hear something new. By the way, I'd like to point out that that very superlative six-minute riff on the Mayan calendar was given by none other than John Hoops. Uh, John was in the audience and is a friend and colleague of Daniel's. As I mentioned earlier, that talk uh, that you just heard was given in 2003, and uh, the next year at Burning Man, Daniel made another appearance at the Palenque Norte Lectures with a presentation that's titled Return of Quetzalcoatls. Now, we do plan on podcasting that uh, here on the Psychedelic Salon in the not-too-distant future, but if you'd like to listen to it right now, you can just go directly to our website where a recording of it is uh, available in MP3 format. You'll also see some pictures there, by the way, that were taken of Daniel as he was delivering the talk that you just heard. So you give you a little idea of the conditions and the <laughs> condition of the crowd as well. Uh, in fact, uh, we've got a small family of websites uh, that all fall under the Matrix Masters banner. So if you go to matrixmasters.com, you'll find links to our alternative news summaries, our .netter experiment. And Planky Norte, and, which is, of course, the section of the site where all of our MP3s are located. If you're only interested in the audio section, of course, you can go there directly. That address is palenquenorte.org, P-A-L-E-N-Q-U-E-N-O-R-T-E dot org, Palenque Norte. For more about Daniel Pinchbeck, uh, probably the best place to start is at his own personal website, which carries the same name as the title of his book. As you know, that famous book is called Breaking Open the Head. So you can go to www.breakingopenthehead.com. The subtitle of this book, by the way, is A Psychedelic Journey into the Heart of Contemporary Shamanism. Now, if all goes according to plan, those of you who are attending the 2005 Burning Man Festival are going to be able to hear two new talks that Daniel's putting together for your intellectual pleasure. And we hope to see many of you there. Just check the program uh, when you get into at the gate and look for the MAPS Planque Norte Lectures. That's right. This year we're going to combine our energies with uh, the good people at MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And if you want to learn more about the exciting research that MAPS is sponsoring all over the world, just uh, be sure to tune in to the next edition of the Psychedelic Salon, 
Hoffman. We're going to be presenting a talk given by MAP's founder and president, Rick Doblin. In 2004, Rick gave a presentation at the Palenque Norte Lectures that was titled Psychedelics and Marijuana, Therapy, Recreation, and Politics. You've actually got to see that typed out to uh, catch the uh, recreation part. It's spelled R-E hyphen creation. And, of course, without the hyphen, it's recreation. Very clever play on words there, Rick. Well done. I've not noticed that before. Well, I guess that's it for today. So uh, thanks again for joining us in the Psychedelic Salon. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. Hi, this is Lorenzo again. The program you just heard was one of my first 70 podcasts, which I produced in 2005 and 2006. Over the last few years, I like to think that the shows have gotten a little better, and uh, now there are around 200 free programs for you to listen to here in the Salon, with more coming out each month. For the first four years of the Salon, our expenses were covered by a small army of donors who contributed their hard-earned cash to help offset the costs of equipment, disk space, and uh, bandwidth, among other things. And some of those donors have repeated their generosity on more than one occasion. But it's always kind of bothered me that uh, by mentioning the donors' names at the beginning of the program, I was also indirectly uh, soliciting more donations for the Salon. And, uh, in a way, I guess that's uh, a fair assessment. However, the majority of our fellow saloners, I find, aren't in a position to make a donation. And from the email I receive, it seems to bother people that they can't do that. So I've made a little change lately in that I removed the donation button from our web page and stopped accepting monetary donations. Instead, I have decided to fund the operation of the salon from the sales of my audiobook, The Genesis Generation. And while the $12 cost is still too much for many of our saloners, we only have to sell about a dozen books a month to cover our costs, and uh, so far we're on track for doing that. So if you're interested in helping to support the Psychedelic Salon financially, you can do so by either buying a copy of my novel for yourself or by sending a gift certificate for one to a friend. And as you already know, you can listen to the first chapter for free in my podcast number 186. And if after hearing the first chapter, should you want to buy a copy, you may do so through my website at www.genesisgeneration.us. And, uh, hey, thanks again for listening to the Psychedelic Salon. I'm really glad you found us. <laughs>